What's up, everybody? This is the Booch, and this shout out goes to all of the members of the Booch Cast Nation. On behalf of the entire team and all of my affiliates, I would like to take this opportunity to thank you guys so much from the bottom of our hearts for your continued support of the Boochcast. Whether it's wrestling recaps, interviews, politics, variety shows, movie reviews, whatever episodes we come out with, you guys listen, you guys tune in, and you show your support. And it means the world to us. And we're going to commence with this latest episode in just a moment. But I want to take this opportunity right now to let you guys know something really huge that is going on in the world of the booch. I am now officially on Cameo. That's right. The Cameo. The same Cameo where celebrities go and give personal shout-out videos for all their fans. And I'm here to let you guys know that for the affordable price of just $25 you can get a personalized video from me on cameo and it can be for any occasion that you want you got somebody you want me to wish a happy birthday I'll make it happen you want me to congratulate someone on graduating high school or college I'll make it happen whether it's a happy holidays video it can be a gender reveal it can be somebody who needs some motivation you want the boots to motivate you or if you got somebody in your life that you want to break up with I'll help make the breakup happen or if you got somebody in your life that you want to tell to fuck off and you want it done booch style all you got to do is go to cameo.com slash booch 365 there'll be a link in the description box of every episode of the booch cast from now till the end of time go there book your video customize it however you want let me know how you want it done and i will make it happen for you so go to cameo.com slash booch365 right now and book your personalized video today for the affordable price of $25. And now, on with the show.
What's up, everybody? This is Vinny Bucci, a.k.a. The Booch, and welcome to The Booch Cast. This week, ladies and gentlemen, we have, once again, a new classic pay-per-view review. Now, what that means is, this is a pay-per-view that we are reviewing from the classic days of wrestling, but this is not a classic pay-per-view that I pulled from the old SoundCloud site and transferred over here. This is a new one that I am recording that is fresh out the box for Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcast, and iHeart radio and how this is done is we review classic pay-per-views here on the Boochcast from WWE, WCW and ECW and I do them from the perspective of not just someone who is a fan of wrestling but also from the perspective of someone who works in the business. Uh, I have a history of working in professional wrestling I am a ring announcer, a commentator, a manager, I have done street team shit that I pray to God I never have to fucking do again I pop the popcorn, I've chauffeured wrestling to and from the building. I've managed Buff Bagwell. I've helped out funding-wise for indie shows. I pretty much have the indie scene covered as far as what jobs you can do in independent wrestling. So, with that resume combined with the wrestling mind that I have achieved over the years from studying pro wrestling, it allows me to take a look at these classic pay-per-views and really analyze them in a way that I couldn't do before when I was a kid because I didn't have the mind that I have today. And this week, in honor of the Super Bowl, which at the time you're listening to this took place last night and at the time that I am recording this it is Saturday night so I have no idea who won the Super Bowl. I can only hope and pray that the San Francisco 49ers emerged victorious. Not because they're my favorite team but they happen to be my mom's favorite team so we as a Bucci family rooted for the 49ers and of course later on this week or next week depending on the schedule I will have Lance Goodman back here on the show and we will be talking about Super Bowl 58 at a later date here on the Boochcast. But today, we're going to be discussing, in honor of that, Super Brawl 3. That's right. It took place on February 21st, 1993. And that year during the Super Bowl, uh, Michael Jackson performed at the halftime show. And if you saw the uh, black sitcom's Last Laugh, Dark Side of the 90s episode, uh, you know why that particular performance was a huge deal. And in honor of that, I have Billie Jean as the intro song here on the Boochcast. So that's why you heard Michael Jackson. Now, if for some reason you don't hear that intro song, it's because... Because Spotify hits me with a copyright strike and I had to change the theme song. But as long as Spotify doesn't hit me with any copyright strikes, you will hear Billie Jean as the intro song here on the Boochcast for this episode. And this was the third Super Brawl pay-per-view and it took place at the Asheville Civic Center in Asheville, North Carolina. There was 6,500 people in attendance and the tagline was witness history in the making at the biggest event of the year. So Super Brawl was a big deal for WCW. This was the pay-per-view they use as their combat to WrestleMania. That's why Super Brawl has the numbers in front of it. Like WrestleMania 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, all the way up to fucking 40. And then you have Super Brawl 1, 2, 3, all the way up to 11 because that's when uh, WCW went out of business about a month after that pay-per-view. Super Brawl 11, but we'll get to that. We'll worry about that one at a later date. And of course, for the commentators, we have good old Tony Schiavone and Jesse the Body Ventura. Uh, Eric Bischoff does the backstage interviews and the ring announcer is of course the most dangerous ring announcer of all time and a former guest here on the Boochcast, the one and only Gary Michael Capetta. And we are going to kick things off here with the first official match of the evening. We've got Eric Watts and Marcus Bagwell versus the Hollywood Blondes. 
Bagwell and Austin start things off. They lock up, and Marcus pushes him into the corner. They lock up again. Both drop to one knee, and then Marcus forces Austin into the corner. The ref orders the break. Marcus gives a clean break, and Austin shoves him, because the Hollywood Blondes are the heels in this match. They lock up again, and Marcus hits an arm drag takedown and quickly goes into a wrist lock, and then right into a modified arm bar. Marcus works the arm, and Austin knees him in the gut and hits a top wrist lock, but Marcus overpowers him and takes him down. And I mentioned here, it is shocking to see Bagwell over power Austin with where their careers ended up like right now both these guys are like on the mid card and it's weird to remember that Bagwell and Austin have actually wrestled each other in the ring before because at this time you don't realize that Marcus is about to become buff the stuff Bagwell and Steve is about to become stone cold Steve Austin one of the biggest stars in the history of professional wrestling so it was shocking to see Bagwell overpower Austin in that moment in that match because I know where their careers are going to go now at the time it was probably not a big deal to the fans in attendance because of where they were at at the time in their careers but since I can see the future that was a amazing thing to see now they get back to their feet and Marcus takes him back down Austin sends Marcus into the corner to break the hold and back elbows him and Austin throws some right hands and a knee to the gut more right hands and shoots him off and goes for a chop but Marcus ducks it and slips away from potential back body drop and gets a waist lock and sends Austin into the ropes Austin holds on and Bagwell quickly lets go and Austin turns into a big right hand from Bagwell that sends him out of the ring. Bagwell throws him back into the ring and works the arm and tags in Watts as they go for a double clothesline and Austin ducks but then they nail a double back body drop and I love the fact that Bagwell hits a right hand that sends Austin out of the ring because back then they really took punches seriously in matches. Like when you punch somebody it felt like it could knock somebody out. Plus Bagwell for a shoot could legit knock people out with a punch back then because Buff has told stories in the past, at least to me, about how you know, when he was the new guy in WCW, everybody just saw him as a pretty boy and didn't know until one day they were at a bar and somebody you know, mouthed off to him and he knocked this guy out in a bar that people realized oh shit, you know, Bagwell may be a pretty boy, but he don't fuck around. If you step to him and you piss him off, he'll make you pay for it. And by the way, that bar fight was a shoot. That's not something that happened in a wrestling ring or at a wrestling show. So, to see that right hand is very believable. And I also love the fact that they took punches seriously, which obviously you don't see much of that in modern wrestling today. Not a lot of people sell punches like they hurt, or people forget that a punch can actually knock somebody out of a ring, because we're so used to seeing all the high-impact crazy moves that most wrestlers don't take the time to sell the little things, because we're so used to wrestlers taking chair shots and finishers and kicking out of fucking everything, that we forget as human beings, a punch in the face if done hard enough, can still fucking rattle you. So that's one thing I love about old school wrestling is they remind you that the simple things can work if sold properly. They then hit a double clothesline on Pillman and Watts gets a side headlock on Austin as Pillman rolls out of the ring and Bagwell goes back to his corner and I love seeing them hit the double clothesline just for the simple fact that back then the double clothesline was so basic but because of MJF and Adam Cole the double clothesline is now a thing that can be seen as devastating because that was their tag team finishing move before they split up. Austin grabs Eric's hair and forces him into the corner and tags in Pillman. Watts starts throwing elbows at both Hollywood Blondes and then knocks down Austin as Pillman gets in the ring and they shove each other with Eric shoving Pillman to the ground who gets up and hits punches and chops. 
Watts gets a headlock, Pillman shoots him off and hits a tackle and bounces off the ropes. But Watts gets up and hits a hip toss, drop kick, another hip toss, and then an arm bar. Watts works the arm and goes over to Bagwell and tags him in. Bagwell goes up and hits an axe handle onto the arm of Pillman. Bagwell twists the arm and Pillman knees him in the gut. And again, he twists the arm, which is an important thing. That's why I hate those, you know, arm drives, people, the Mexican arm drives. People go up top and they're just holding hands and pulling somebody down. You twist the arm, you work the arm, you get wrist control so you can control the person's arm. And it doesn't look like you're all are holding hands frolicking through a fucking meadow. It looks like you're actually trying to hurt a motherfucker. Pillman clubs him in the back, drags him to the corner, and tags in Austin. Pillman does a front face lock and Austin kicks him in the gut. Pillman clubs him in the back and then leaves the ring as Austin picks up Bagwell by his hair and hits a big right hand. Austin shoots him off, Bagwell ducks the clothesline, does it again, and then hits a flying cross body on Austin for a two count. They both quickly get up and Bagwell nails a drop kick, one of the best in the business. Bagwell's drop kicks look perfect here. And again, I know a lot of people think I'm being biased because Buff and I are friends. I'm really not. His drop kicks look legit awesome. And I said this before and I'll say it again. If Bagwell has had a bad match in his career, I haven't seen it yet in these classic pay-per-views. But I am the type of person and Buff knows this about me. That if I ever see Buff having a bad match at any point during these pay-per-view reviews, I will call it out. And Buff would respect me if I did because he knows I'm I, how I critique wrestling. And I'm saying, he hasn't had a bad match that I've seen. And his drop kicks are legit some of the best in the business. Bagwell hits a side headlock takeover and, and holds Austin down as he gets a quick cover, but Austin kicks out. Austin fights up, but Bagwell still has the headlock as he drags him over to Watts and tags him back in. Bagwell holds on as Watts climbs up to the second rope and hits a double axe handle to Austin's back. Bagwell leaves the ring as Watts gets a side headlock and grinds Austin's head with it. And I love love that he is selling the headlock like he actually has it on and is using it to beat him instead of quickly shooting him off into a high spot. That's again another lost art form in wrestling today. It's one thing to pawn a headlock. It's another thing to take the time to let that headlock register and let people know, hey, you're not just holding him to move on to something else that's stupid. That way your headlock doesn't look fake. Make it look like you're really trying to hurt somebody or you're really trying to hurt to beat the other person with this headlock and then after you've taken the time to do that then shoot him off and do the high spot. Austin shoots him off but Watts hits a quick kick and locks in the abdominal stretch. Now I love how Jesse Ventura says he should pull the tights cause he would. And then Tony says shortcuts are the only way with you. Ventura responds by saying no that's called winning. Take the easy way out. That's all for all the kids at home you know. Tony says I hope my kids don't listen to you. So it was a great back and forth there. But again Ventura is supposed to be a he commentator. So he looks at things from a different perspective and his job is to try to justify what the heel does or why you should cut corners and why that's the best way to go about things. And that's what makes a great heel announcer. It's not just burying the baby faces, Corey Graves. You're supposed to get the heels over on the mic by justifying their behavior. And a great example of that was Kevin Sullivan. When he and I did commentary for Memorial Mayhem 2, he had to jump in with me. He was great at that. He created the dialogue that was necessary for us to have to debate how the heels conducted themselves in the ring. And the chemistry between Tony and Jesse is awesome. They are great. Tony loves how to shut him down and say what he's got to say. Jesse plays off of him very well. I love the dynamic between these two. Legit. 
It's awesome. Watts walks him over to Bagwell and tags him in. Bagwell gets in the ring and applies the abdominal stretch to Austin. And I love the smooth transition here because there was no wasted movement. There was no stalling. There was no, there was nothing about this that looked fake. By that I mean, it wasn't like, oh, I got out of it real quickly. But, you know, there was an easy chance for Austin to get away. There wasn't a, a quick way for Austin to get out. Literally, it was abdominal stretch, tag in, Bagwell got in. Watts quickly let go. Bagwell quickly grabbed. It was just smooth. It was fluent from one abdominal stretch to the other. Austin grabs Bagwell's hair to break the hold and nails a hip toss. Austin picks him up and tags in Pillman. Now, love seeing Austin grab the hair. Because again, that's a heel tactic. Because you're not supposed to pull hair in wrestling. But it's a great, effective way as a heel to easily break out of something or find a way to get through. And you do it without the referee seeing you, which is another key element. Now, Austin locks in a front face lock and Pillman comes off the second rope with a double axe handle to the back of Bagwell. Pillman chops Marcus and then drags him to the middle of the ring and shoots him off. Bagwell reverses and hits a gorilla press slam. Pillman cowers in the corner as Bagwell goes for the 10 punches in the corner. And I love that Pillman wasn't afraid to beg. Heels today could learn from this. This is an effective way as a heel to get heat and get the baby face over. It's quick. There's a lot of ways as a heel you can get a baby face over, but nothing does it more quickly than begging and pleading for your life. Ric Flair was a master at it. As much as I don't like him, I have to say this, The Miz was also great at it. Don't be afraid to be a little bit of a chicken shit heel. You're allowed to be a little cowardly as a heel. The trick is, though, the cow cowardly act has to look believable in two ways. One, you have to convince people you're actually scared, and B, you have to be backing down from somebody that is either your height or bigger. You don't back, if you're backing down from someone who's clearly smaller or weaker than you, you're definitely going to get the baby face over, but you're going to bury yourself in the process. So when you do it, you got to, you got to make sure you do it right. Again, even something great can get fucked up if it's not done properly. Anybody can hold a tool in their hand, but if you don't know how to properly use that tool, you ain't going to get shit built. Bagwell gets two punches in and Pillman picks him up and takes him to the center of the ring for an atomic drop but misses. Bagwell goes for a clothesline. Pillman ducks, taunts and then turns into a second clothesline for a two count. Bagwell gets the headlock and tags in Watts. Watts kicks him and applies a headlock. Can't tell if the audience is saying woo or boo during this time. I can't tell if they're booing or wooing. It's it was hard. I, I was hard of hearing on that one. Pillman fights out and sends Watts into the turnbuckle and tags in Austin. They beat down on Watts and then Austin nails a scoop slam and a forearm to the face. Goes for a splash, but Watts gets the knees up and rolls into a cradle, but Austin kicks out at two. Watts takes him back down and locks in the Boston Crab. Austin hit the mat. That should be a tap out. And that's what irritates me because there was a period of time in WCW where you had to actually yell, you had to nod your head or say, yes, I submit for a ref to ring the bell. There wasn't a lot of tapping out yet. See, if you're locked in a submission and you're hitting the mat over and over again, that should be a tap out. The only time smacking the mat should not be a tap out is if you're trying to like, if you're smacking the mat to push yourself up or smacking the mat to drag yourself to the ropes. Other than that, if you're hitting the mat over and over again, that should be a tap out. That should be a submission. That should end the fucking match right there. So that was one aspect of the match that irritated me a little bit. Watts sits down to apply more pressure. Pillman kicks him in the face to break the hold, and then Austin tags him in, and they get Watts in the corner, and Pillman stomps on him and chokes him with his boot. Pillman chops Watts and shoots him off, goes for a big boot, but Watts takes him down and locks in the STF, but Pillman quickly gets to the ropes. Love that counter into the STF. I never 
never seen that before. It was great wrestling to counter a big boot with an STF. I'd never seen that before. This is great wrestling, and this is showing that old school wrestling can still be entertaining, and that you could get the crowd to go crazy without all the extra bells and whistles and gimmicks that you see in modern wrestling today. Pillman kicks him in the gut and sends him out of the ring. And Pillman jumps onto the apron to fool Watts, but then he goes for a double axe handle and Watts moves out of the way and Pillman hits the guardrail. I love the psychology here. Watts turning into it and moving out of the way. This is how spots like this should be done. Modern wrestlers need to take fucking notes. That's what I love about it, you know? Watts turns into it. He doesn't stand there waiting to catch the motherfucker. And even as he comes off the apron, he still moves out of the way. So even though he turned into it, he could have took the spot right there and it still would have been believable. But even then, he still moved out of the way. Again, that's how you handle spots like that. You don't sit and wait to catch. You slowly get up and then you turn into it. That's how the timing should be done. No one should be standing there waiting to catch somebody coming down. Because if you have to do that in order to protect your opponent, then you're not good at doing the spot, and you shouldn't do it at all, because it looks fake and dumb. Here, it didn't look fake and dumb. It was done properly. I seriously think this match needs to be shown in the AEW locker room, and all the AEW originals, all the indie darlings, need to sit in a chair and take fucking notes, because a lot of y'all don't know how to work for shit, and this match will teach you. Watts throws him back in the ring, Pillman pulls Watts down into the turnbuckle, and Austin throws some quick kicks at him. Austin gets tagged in and the blondes shoot Watts, Watts off and hit a double elbow shot sending Watts out of the ring. Watts tries to get up but Austin gets on the ring apron and kicks him back down. Austin then gets out of the ring and hits a scoop slam on the floor. Austin throws him back in the ring and goes for a sunset flip but Watts counters and starts beating him down. Pillman attacks from behind and Bagwell tries to save him but the ref forces him back to his corner. Now it never made sense to me how refs let heels break the rules but not the baby faces. It feels biased. You know, this is one aspect of wrestling psychology that I always thought was stupid. You have to see the babyface tag in, but the heels, they can tag in and out while the ref's back is turned, and the ref doesn't say a fucking thing. That is fucking stupid to me. If the referee can't be down the middle, then the ref is incompetent, and it looks incompetent, and it shouldn't be done this way. So, that's just another That's another thing about the old school wrestling aspect, and even in wrestling today, that always irritated me was, the ref never has to see the heels tag in, but he always has to see the baby faces tag in. That's fucking stupid to me. Pillman gets tagged in and chops Watts. He forces Watts to his knees and chokes him with the middle rope. Austin chokes him on the bottom rope while the ref backs off Pillman. Pillman and Watts exchanging blows as Pillman gets the upper hand and shoots him off, but Watts nails a sunset flip, but the ref is distracted by Austin and can't make the count. Finally does, but Pillman kicks out at two. Austin gets tagged in and clubs Watts in the head. Austin stands on Watts' back while taunting Bagwell. Austin punches and chops down Watts. He then hits Bagwell, who gets into the ring as the ref backs him down. The blondes beat down on Watts as Pillman gets tagged in. Austin nails a scoop slam and Pillman goes up top as Austin grabs Pillman and launches him onto Watts, who gets his knees up to block it. Both men are down as Watts crawls to Bagwell. Pillman tags in Austin, who cuts off the hot tag and hits a back suplex for a two count. Austin sends Watts into the corner and then runs at him but they bump heads and Watts lays on the bottom rope. Austin goes on the attack but Watts moves out of the way. I say goes for the attack because I don't know the name of the move where you jump on a guy laying on the ropes and land your feet or groin first on them onto them so I just I don't have a fucking clue. I, I don't know what that means. Watts fights to his feet as Austin tags in Pillman and Watts 
falls into the tag on Bagwell, and Bagwell leaps into the ring as Pillman begs for his life. But Bagwell comes in like a house of fire. He forces Pillman in the corner and nails the 10 punches while also punching Austin off the apron when he attempts to break it up. Love that spot, never seen it before. Usually when someone on the apron breaks something up, they break it up. But he's literally doing the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. As Austin comes over, he bam, knocks Austin off and then goes 10, and the crowd pops. Bagwell shoots off Pillman and hits a power slam. He goes for the cover, but Austin breaks it up. Watts gets in the ring and attacks Austin while Bagwell works on Pillman. Austin pulls Watts down and sends him out of the ring, and Pillman rakes the eyes of Bagwell. Austin goes back to his corner, but Watts comes in to attack. The ref backs Watts into the corner as Bagwell hits a fisherman suplex into a pin, but the ref can't see it. Austin does a double axe handle off the top rope to break up the pin. Pillman then covers Bagwell. One, two, three. The winners of the match, the Hollywood Blondes. This, ladies and gentlemen, was beautiful tag team wrestling right here. I love the tag team combo moves. I love that these guys all work together as a team. The Hollywood Blondes obviously had good chemistry. Bagwell and Watts, this is my first time seeing them work together as a tag team, so it was interesting to see. And it just further proves that Bagwell is a phenomenal tag team wrestler with the fact that he has great chemistry with everybody he tag teams with. And that's a gift. Because there are some people who are good at tag team wrestling, but they're only good with one person. Bagwell is adaptable to every partner he has. And that's what makes this amazing to see. Very entertaining. And again, I recommend this to all modern wrestlers to watch and take notes. And this match was 16 minutes and 34 seconds. And on that note, we're going to move on to the next match of the evening. We've got Too Cold Scorpio one-on-one against Chris Benoit. They lock up and Benoit forces him against the ropes and the ref orders a break and there's a clean break. Scorpio does the same but during the break Benoit hits a kick in the gut and then a headbutt. Benoit shoots him off and hits a vicious elbow. Benoit stomps him and he picks him up and hits a snap suplex. Benoit stomps him again and then chops him and shoots him into the corner. But Scorpio hops onto the top turnbuckle and turns into a flying crossbody for a two count. Now, this goes back to what I was saying before about people just standing there. Benoit just fucking stood there and waited for it. Again, not liking it, not happy, already got something here that I'm not enjoying. So that I had a major issue with, was Benoit just fucking standing there, doing nothing, and waiting to catch the guy. Again, it looked fake. They get up, and Scorpio hits a drop kick and then bounces off the ropes, and it's a flying spin kick that sends Benoit to the outside. Love that spot right there. They lock up, and Benoit works the arm. Scorpio flips out and reverses. Benoit does the same and regains wrist control. Scorpio flips out and gets a hammerlock. Benoit counters out and hits a hip toss and a modified armbar. I love this exchange because it was fluid. One after the other. It looked real. It looked believable because it was interchangeable at every moment. Nothing here looked stupid or fake. This was amazing to see. I love this chain wrestling right here. Benoit continues to work the arm, but Scorpio grabs the rope and flips over to reverse the hold. Scorpio hits a modified Northern Lights suplex and then continues to work the arm. Again, he in wrestling, working the arm. Benoit tries to fight out, but Scorpio switches to a hammerlock and traps the arm with his feet and then falls backwards. I have never seen that move before, and it looks pretty fucking devastating. So, not bad. That was a good spot. Uh, Benoit reverses into the hammerlock, and Scorpio flips out, sends him into the ropes, and does a backflip, which reminds me of Gable Stevenson. Benoit goes for a clothesline. Scorpio leapfrogs and flips into a drop down as Benoit comes back, and Scorpio gets an arm drag takeover that sends to the outside. Another great exchange. 
And the backflip, the reason that reminded me of Gable Stevenson is because a while back, uh, Gabe was working a house show, and apparently when he pushed somebody into the ropes, he did a backflip, and of course, uh, all the wrestling marks want to criticize him. Like, yes, we're going to criticize Gable for doing a backflip in the middle of a match. Really? Y'all the same motherfuckers that cheer coffin drops and suicide dives and corkscrews and all the other stupid shit we see, but a backflip, oh, that's where we draw the line. But the backflip was unnecessary. So were the coffin drops and the suicide dives and the corkscrews. Scorpio and Benoit go for the test of strength. Scorpio takes him down, but Benoit uses his neck to bridge up. Benoit fights back up and takes Scorpio down. He does a neck bridge as well. Benoit leaps onto Scorpio and attempts to lose all of his weight to try and get him down. Doesn't look gay because privates aren't touching. That's probably... (laughs) That was my first thought right there with the way they were, you know, doing the test of strength and how at one point they were laying on top of each other. You know, it it looked kind of gay from one angle. But the reason I say it doesn't look gay is because the dicks aren't touching. Like they found they're like, okay, we're going to do this spot. We're going to make sure that our dicks aren't touching because that would look gay. Scorpio leaps up and does a monkey flip. And I want to take the opportunity to say that is not racist because that is the actual term. That term is called a monkey flip. Okay, so I don't want anybody going on here going, he used the word monkey in a match with Scorpio. I am not saying anything bad about Scorpio. I have all the respect in the world for Scorpio. I love him. He's a great competitor. But the move that he did in wrestling is called a monkey flip. It is used by every person of every skin color. So you snowflakes can fuck off to your safe space. And Benoit responds with one of his own, a monkey flip of his own. But Scorpio lands on his feet and hits a drop kick and then a hip toss and takes him back down. He locks in a modified armbar, lets go temporarily to hit a leg drop on the arm and then reapplies the modified armbar. Benoit fights up and kicks Scorpio off and then hits a big right hand. He hits a headbutt and shoots him off. Scorpio reverses but Benoit slides in between his legs and goes for a takedown but Scorpio uses his legs to flip Benoit. This was a weird spot because it didn't look believable. I'm sorry. I'm supposed to believe you have the you do a double A takedown and you can lose your use your legs to flip a guy. I'm sorry, that looks stupid to me. That was a dumb spot right there. Unnecessary. Scorpio goes for a drop kick, but Benoit dodges it and goes for an elbow, but Scorpio dodges that and then nails a super kick and then a hip toss and then applies another modified armbar and a forearm to the face. Now, at this point, Tony and Jesse get into an argument over whether to call them athletes or wrestlers. To me, it reminds me of the wrestlers, superstars, sports entertainment debate that we have in the modern era. Like, do we call them athletes or do we call them wrestlers? Just like today, you know, they're called wrestlers. We're called superstars. We're sports entertainers. Like, there's so many different nicknames. At the end of the day, they're wrestlers. Some of these guys are wrestlers. Some of them are fucking acrobats. And I hope we can get rid of the acrobats or put them in a spot where they can't fuck the business up anymore. Scorpio rolls him up for a crucifix pin, but Benoit kicks out a two. Scorpio still has the armbar, and Benoit fights out and sends him hard into the corner. Benoit shoots him off, leapfrogs over. Scorpio cartwheels out of the way as Benoit kips up. Scorpio goes for a spin kick, but Benoit dodges and hits a vicious clothesline. Benoit picks him up and shoots him off and then hits a clothesline. Benoit picks him up after taunting the fans and hits a backbreaker and then bends him in half across his knee with one hand on the chin and the other on the knee. This is another good spot right here. Scorpio grabs Benoit by the hair and then knees him in the face with the opposite knee and opposite from the one Benoit was, you know, holding down. Benoit hits a snapmare takeover into a reverse chin lock. Benoit picks him up and hits a right hand then hits a front suplex onto the ropes and then stomps on Scorpio 
and kicks him out of the ring. Benoit then punches Scorpio and tries to send him into the turnbuckle, but Scorpio blocks and slams him into the turnbuckle and then goes up top and goes for a missile drop kick. But Benoit moves out of the way and goes for a cover, but Scorpio kicks out at two. Benoit hits a snapmare and another reverse chin lock. Scorpio fights up and hits him in the midsection and then bounces off the ropes. Ducks the clothesline and then Benoit hits a spine buster and then locks in the lion tamer, which is the walls of Jericho for the modern fans. And I love how Jesse here explains that the elevation of the feet causes more stress on the neck and upper back as opposed to a regular Boston Crab that puts pressure on the lower back. So that was great. That That's another thing that makes Jesse Ventura a great commentator is educating the audience on the difference between a lion tamer and a Boston Crab and the elevation of the feet. Because again, that was something I got to learn from listening to Jesse do commentary is that how important that is, how painful it is, telling the story to the audience. Benoit hits another snapmare reverse chin lock, which is, this is kind of getting repetitive at this point. Like, don't get me wrong, I like old school wrestling, but even now I'm like, alright, I've been seeing this shit over and over and over again. Y'all motherfuckers are going to the well too many goddamn times. C- can we add something else to this or fucking go home? Benoit shots him and then puts him on the turnbuckle and goes for a super back suplex. Benoit hit his neck because he forgot to tuck his chin. Yeah, I noticed that. Benoit did not tuck his chin on that one, which was kind of stupid. Showing again that Benoit caused a lot of trauma to his neck and head. He goes for the cover but Scorpio kicks out. Love how Jesse says he would have got the win if he tucked his chin. I love that. Jesse explaining why tucking the chin is important but also they teach you that in wrestling school. When you take a bump you're supposed to tuck your chin so you don't cause brain damage. Benoit hits a Russian leg sweep for a two count. Benoit goes for a back suplex but Scorpio counters into a crossbody for a two count. It looks like something out of a 2K video game. Like when you pick somebody up and they do that counter which is like one of those vicious counters that puts you in the yellow. So now you can't counter any moves. You basically got to run away or get your ass kicked. Like, that's what I was thinking when I saw that. It, it felt like I was watching a 2K video game. Scorpio hits him in the midsection, clubs the back, shoots him off, and Benoit clubs him in the back. Benoit hits a powerbomb, and Scorpio kicks out. How does that not end the match? Finish or not, these guys are dead at this point. Like, at this point, the powerbomb should have ended this. That should have been the fucking finish. That should have been it. Because now, at this point... I'm getting annoyed. Benoit goes for a dominator, but Scorpio counters into a sunset flip, but they're too close to the ropes, and Scorpio was not in a position to get the cover. And this looked very sloppy. This was a very sloppy spot right here. It looked bad. Benoit fights out and starts kicking him. Scorpio shoots him into the corner. Benoit runs at him, but Scorpio gets his feet up. Scorpio goes for a kick. Benoit catches the leg, and Scorpio hits an instiguri. Scorpio shoots him off. Benoit ducks two spin kicks and then gets hit with a vicious clothesline. Benoit begs in the corner as Scorpio hits him with a series of lefts and rights. Scorpio shoots him into the other corner and does a 360 splash. Scorpio goes up and hits a weird flip move for a two count. That should have been the finish. That should have been it right there. Especially since Scorpio was going over in this match. That should have been the fucking finish. I didn't need to see nothing else. Scorpio shoots him off. Benoit reverses. Scorpio ducks the clothesline. Jumps on his head, but Benoit flits him down. Benoit hits a scoop slam and then jumps up the second rope and hits a flying leg drop for a two count. At this point, I'm saying, dear God, end this match match please I I can't take this shit no more I'm sorry this match did not need to go the distance these guys should not be having a match this fucking long because they clearly were running out of shit to do so I'm just like can we put an end to this fucking shit Scorpio hits an inside cradle for a two count Gary and the crowd count down from 10 as the match is almost over Scorpio misses a punch Benoit goes for a full Nelson Scorpio drops down and jackknifes Benoit for the win right before the time limit expires so this match had a 20 minute time limit and the match went 19 minutes 
and 59 seconds. So by one second, Scorpio was able to get the win in this match. Now, obviously, they were trying to tell a story here with the time limit, and I get it. And from a story standpoint, I can understand. But, Jesus Christ, 20-minute time limit's way too fucking long, especially for a match that's only the second match on the card. This isn't even a title match. Why did this need to be 20 minutes? This could have been a 15-minute time limit match if you were going to do that. You could have shaved a couple minutes off this match. 10-minute time limit, 15-minute time limit. We didn't need to be see 20 minutes of this shit. It was way too fucking long. Way too fucking long. And it was great in the beginning, but then it started getting really boring and repetitive in the middle. It was just, it, it was, I was getting bored. I was like, I can't listen, I can't watch this shit. Can we please put a stop to it? And on that note, we're going to move on to the next match of the evening. We got Bill Irwin going one-on-one -on -one against Davey Boy Smith. They lock up and Davey keeps shoving Bill down to the ground. They lock up and Bill gets a top wrist lock and Davey powers out and shoves him down again. They lock up and Davey forces Bill against the ropes and the ref calls for a break. They break and Bill takes a shot and puts Davey against the ropes and punches him. Bill shoots him off and Davey hits a tackle, bounces off the ropes and does it again. They crisscross until Bill stops himself and then Davey clotheslines into the outside. Now this didn't cause a DQ because that only happens if you throw your opponent over the top rope. Not if you clothesline them or anything else like that. You have to throw your opponent over the top rope for that to be a disqualification back in the old days. And that was great psychology from the wrestlers and storytelling from the commentators. They did a really good job of explaining that and letting people know. Because we're thinking, oh, is that a disqualification? No, because you have to throw your opponent over the top rope. So this doesn't count as a DQ. Great explanation. Great way to educate the audience. Now that we're informed, we can better enjoy the match. Bill goes back in the ring, runs at Davey, and Davey does a drop down and a leapfrog and then a gorilla press slam. Bill backs up and then falls out of the ring through the ropes. Bill gets back in and they lock up and Bill hits a forearm shot and gets a side headlock. Davey shoots him off and Bill goes for the tackle but Davey is unfazed. Bill bounces off the ropes and Davey nails a hip toss. Bill kicks him in the gut and then twists the arm before delivering another kick to the gut. He hits another one and then starts clubbing him in the back before slamming him in the turnbuckle. He shoots him into the other corner and hits a clothesline. Bill shoots him off again and then hits an elbow. Bill goes to the cover, but Davey kicks out with authority. Sends him flying through the air, and he almost hits the ref. Which is a very good kick out, although risky, because if you knock out the ref, then you can't get the win. And also, you could risk disqualification if the ref gets hit. Bill clubs him in the back and then slams him throat first into the top rope for the two count. Bill applies a reverse chin lock to keep Davey down. Davey fights up, and they exchange blows in the center of the ring. Davey hits a stalling vertical suplex. Davey shoots him into the corner and then slams him into, a, into the corner. Davey nails an Irish whip and then a tremendous clothesline for a two count. Now, Jesse asks why they called an Irish whip. And Tony says it started in Ireland in 1863 in a wrestling match. Other sources say it started in Dublin in the 1920s. And I kind of like that because people often wonder why it's called an Irish whip. And I got news for you, ladies and gentlemen. I did some research and I found out where the term Irish whip comes from. It comes from a gentleman by the name of Dano O'Mahony, who was an Irish professional wrestler who enjoyed a brief but meteoric rise to massive popularity in the mid-1930s following a successful introduction to the Boston regional wrestling scene. His surname was usually spelled O'Mahony. O apostrophe M-H-A-O-N-E-Y. Even though his legal name, it was spelled O apostrophe M-A-H-O-N-Y during his wrestling career. His signature move was the Irish whip. 
which acquired its name due to its association with O. Mahoney. O. Mahoney would find success as a wrestler, becoming the National Wrestling Association's World Heavyweight Champion. Professional wrestling journalist and historian Dave Meltzer has referred to O. Mahoney as the first true ethnic super draw in American professional wrestling. Now, of course, keep in mind, this is during a time when Dave Meltzer actually had a brain and knew what the fuck he was talking about and wasn't an all-elite kiss ass and cocksucker so back then you could actually take what he said seriously today you take it with 50 grains of salt but yes irish whip came from dano o'mahoney that's who invented the irish whip and it was his signature move and that's what o'mahoney called it he called it the irish whip that is great in fact in 2002 there's a wrestling promotion called irish whip wrestling which was named in his honor. So that's pretty fucking cool. We just learned where the Irish whip came from, ladies and gentlemen. So think about that next time you see a fine Irish whip. Know that it came from Dano O'Mahony. Milas. Milads. Davey shoots him into the corner and runs at him, but Bill gets the boot up. Bill hops up onto the second rope and leaps off, but Davey catches him. He then hoists him onto his shoulder and hits the running power slam for the win. Overall, this is a decent match. You know, some pretty good moments. And it was it was basic, but it did what I needed to do. And like I said, we got to get some uh, education on the Irish whip. <laughs> so overall, I enjoyed the match. And both guys definitely deserve their props for putting on a very good match. Now, like I said, it wasn't, you know, over-the-top exciting, but it told a story, and it did what it needed to do. Get in, get out. As the match was 5 minutes and 49 seconds long. And on that note, we're going to move on here to the next match of the evening. We have a Falls Count Anywhere match. Paul Orndorff goes one-on-one against Cactus Jack. Now, in the beginning, Paul is being interviewed by Eric Bischoff. But before Paul can get going with the promo, Cactus shows up with a shovel and chases Paul down to the ring, missing with every swing. The ref tries to rip the shovel out of Cactus's hand, to which I replied, Why? It's no DQ. A false count anywhere match is no disqualification. So why does the ref feel compelled to rip the shovel out of Cactus's hand? It can legally be used as a weapon. So I thought that was fucking stupid on the part of the ref. Paul then kicks Cactus in the back of the head while in the ring and while Cactus is distracted. Paul takes his robe off and drops down off the apron with a right hand. Paul now hits some more right hands while Cactus is against the guardrail and then stomps on him. Paul slams him against the guardrail. Paul kicks him in the midsection and chokes him with the TV cable. Paul slams him against the guardrail and punches him. He goes to slam him again but Cactus blocks it and starts fighting back with punches and headbutts. He then slams Paul into the guardrail and removes the padding from the floor and scoop slams him onto the concrete. He then drops an elbow on Paul for a two count. Now I love they are mostly fighting outside and that the first pinfall attempt was outside the ring. I like that for two reasons. One, it reminds people this is a false count anywhere match and you can get a pinfall anywhere so it's a good education reminder for the audience. And two, because it makes this match different from the other three matches that we just saw. So I don't mind seeing them fight with weapons or fight outside the ring. Not just because it's a false count anywhere with no DQ, but because in the last three matches, there were no weapons and there was very little to no fighting on the floor. So now this match looks different and it looks special. And that is a good way of structuring a card. Because if the other three matches had weapons and fighting on the floor, then what would make this false count anywhere match special if everybody's doing what the fuck they're doing? It's stupid. 
stupid and it makes no fucking sense. Cactus goes up to the second rope and when Paul gets up, he goes for a sunset flip and lands on the concrete and misses Paul, who has to fall backwards for the pin attempt. This right here was a horrible botch. It was a stupid spot and it shits upon the business. I'm sorry. I love Mick Foley. I've met Mick Foley in person. I have all the respect in the world for Cactus Jack, but that was a stupid fucking spot and unnecessary. And it actually reminds me of the promo Ric Flair cut on Foley and TNA where, you know, Foley was the man who, you know, inspired a lot of these reckless wrestlers today because they're all trying to be like him. They don't want to learn from his mistakes. They want to repeat them. So... That was a horrible, stupid spot. And like I said, Paul had to fall backwards. Cactus didn't pull him down. That looked so fake as fuck on the part of Paul Orndorff. It was sad. It made Paul look stupid. It made Cactus look stupid. And it made the business look stupid. So, yes, I got to put Cactus on blast for that one. Paul starts kicking him and throws him into the ring. Paul hits a running knee to the face and then kicks him in the stomach. Paul shoots him off and then hits a clothesline. Paul rips his face and knees him in the back of the head. Paul throws him out of the ring and hits an axe handle off the apron as he drags him down the ramp. He then throws him over two guardrails over by the lights. They exchange blows and Cactus throws him back over the guardrail to the entrance ramp. Cactus punches him and Paul hits some elbows and then suplexes him over the guardrail and the small of his back landed on the rail. So I'm like, ah shit, that's gotta hurt. Paul jumps the rail and slams his face into the bars and then jumps back over and works the knee as Cactus is trapped under the guardrail. Paul picks up Cactus after the ref frees him and Paul takes him back to the ringside area and slams him onto the guardrail. I love that they're going everywhere. It's supposed to be falls count anywhere, so they're going all around the building. I love this. And as long as nobody else does this after them, this match is going to look special. This match is going to look epic in that regard. So I love that they're making this different from the other three matches that I just saw. I saw a tag team match and two singles matches, and they were doing a lot of basic shit. So now we're seeing different shit, so this makes it interesting. Paul throws him back in the ring, hits an axe handle off the top rope, and then kicks him in the face. Paul goes for the injured knee and rips the brace off. He then goes to work on the knee and then suplexes him over the top rope. Cactus lands on the apron, but Paul then strangles Cactus with his own knee brace. He then stomps on the exposed knee. Paul locks in the figure four which is a great moment considering Ric Flair is returning to WCW because apparently this was the big selling point for Super Brawl 3 that Ric Flair was coming back to the WCW because for a period of time we all know Ric Flair went to WWE he had the world title with him he was saying I am the real world's champion because I believe Ric Flair was the champion when he left and for a couple of years he was in WWE where he would win the 92 Royal Rumble, become a two-time WWE champion, uh, obviously had the you know WrestleMania 8 match with Macho Man Randy Savage that should have been the main event, but we'll get to that whenever I talk about WrestleMania 8. But anyway, Ric Flair is now returning to WCW at this pay-per-view, and they're anxiously awaiting his arrival. So to see Paul Orndorff use the figure four, it got a loud pop from the crowd because they're thinking return of the nature boy. Cactus fights out by punching Paul. Cactus falls against the ropes, and Paul hits a clothesline to send Cactus out. Paul slams him face first onto the floor. He then grabs the knee and slams it into the concrete floor. Paul punches him repeatedly and slams his face into the concrete. Paul slams him against the ring apron. Paul gets in the ring and grabs the brace as Cactus climbs onto the ring apron and then Paul hits him with the brace and he falls to the floor with the back of his head and neck hitting the concrete. Paul hits him with the brace in the ribs and then throws him back in the ring and grabs a chair. He hits the knee with the chair multiple times. Paul lays the chair down and says for the pile driver as he does the Hogan taunts the crowd 
although Hogan is not yet with the company because it would be another year before Hulk Hogan came to WCW. So, you know, he's doing the, you know, cup in the ear and all that. So Cactus grabs the shovel, and when Paul turns around, Cactus clocks him with the shovel and pins him one, two, three, four, the win. Now, I love that there were limited weapons in this match. You know, they had weapons, they used weapons, but they didn't overdo it. There wasn't like 20 steel chairs, 10 kendo sticks, um, you know, five tables and a partridge and a pear tree. It, there, were, there were limited weapons and they were used sporadically and properly. However, I wish the pinfall didn't happen in the ring. That's probably my biggest gripe, other than the botched sunset flip. I felt like the pinfall should have happened outside the ring because it's false count anywhere, and we know all the other matches that are normal matches are going to have pinfalls inside the ring. So I would prefer that this pinfall happened out on the floor or on the floor area or whatever. If you wanted it in front of the crowd, it could be like on the mat outside the ring, but it didn't need to be inside the ring. If you're going to do a false count anywhere match and the match not in the ring. So that way it looks completely different from everything else we see. And this match was 12 minutes and 17 seconds. And on that note, we're going to move on to the next match of the evening. We got some tag team action here. We got the Rock and Roll Express versus the Heavenly Bodies with Jim Cornette. Now, in the beginning of the match, Jesse mentions they're in the Smoky Mountains, which is funny and ironic considering Cornette runs Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And they had a working agreement with Bill Watts and Jim Hurd was gone, which is why Cornette was here during this time. And he left after Bill Watts did. Because as we all know, Cornette quit in October of 1990, like the day before Halloween, I believe, was when he quit. And he left the WCW, him and Stan Lane quit, and he went to Memphis for a while, and then he set up Smoky Mountain Wrestling, and he was running Smoky Mountain Wrestling, and then when Jim Hurd was finally gone, because, especially now, because this is the first pay-per-view with Eric Bischoff as executive producer. So even though he was the on-camera interviewer, the only time you mentioned him being executive producer was in the closing credits of the show. So this is where Eric Bischoff is now in charge. But Bill Watts, at the time when he was running it, Cornette had a working relationship with Bill Watts. And then when Eric Bischoff took over, eventually, you know, Cornette would leave, you know, because him and Bischoff would have their fair share of, you know, disagreements and shit. But it was funny when Jesse mentioned, you know, we're in the Smoky Mountains, considering that, you know, playoff of alliances. Now, Robert and Pritchard start things off. They lock up and Pritchard forces Robert into the corner. He does it again and goes for a hip toss, but Robert holds onto the ropes and blocks it twice before turning him around and nailing a hip toss of his own. He then does a flying head scissors takedown and then tags in Ricky, who nails a Frankensteiner. Pritchard gets a side headlock and tags in Stan. Ricky shoots Pritchard off and drops down and Pritchard slides out of the ring and then Stan leaps into the ring and Ricky catches him with a hip toss. Robert nails Stan with a right hand and Ricky hits an arm drag takeover. Ricky works the arm and spins Stan around as he tries to tag Pritchard but misses by an inch. And the whole time the crowd is chanting rock and roll, rock and roll, rock and roll. Like, because they love the Rock and Roll Express. And I love the fact that he's missing him by an inch. Like, that is great timing on the part of everyone involved in the ring. So I love it. Ricky, Stan, and Pritchard really have to, you know, time that perfectly, and all three did a phenomenal job. Pritchard gets frustrated and comes to the ring anyway, and Ricky swings Stan right into him, and both men are down. Stan goes over to Ricky and starts attacking him. Why didn't he tag his partner? He finally had a chance to. See, that's what I don't get. You're struggling to tag your partner in. You clearly want to tag him in. You finally get an opportunity, and instead, you want to run over to the guy and beat him down? That's just stupid psychology to me. That's dumb as fuck. Go tag your fucking partner, moron. Stan shoots Ricky 
off, but Robert lays in the top turnbuckle to block it. Ricky shoots Stan off, and Pritchard tries to block it, but Robert runs into the ring and starts kicking Pritchard. Pritchard lands on the canvas and is now sitting in the corner as Ricky shoots Stan into Tom, which was kind of similar to the ass slam that Rikishi used to do in the corner. Robert gets in, and the Rock and Roll Express does a double hip toss to Stan. They shoot Tom into Stan, who hits a back body drop on his partner. I think that was his way of dodging the head-to-head collision, I want to say. Otherwise, that looked dumb. But I think that was it. Like, we're going to have to have a head-to-head collision. I don't think so. I'll just flip you over since I clearly can't get out of the way. Rock and roll then hit double right hands to Stan, and the heavenly bodies retreat out of the ring. Cornette tries to call a timeout. Great on his part. They get back in the ring with Pritchard in the ring and Stan on the apron. Ricky is the legal man for his team. They lock up, and Tom forces Ricky into the corner. Pritchard hits a series of hard right hands until Ricky blocks and starts throwing some of his own, and they start exchanging blows until Ricky finally fights out of the corner. Ricky knocks him into the other corner and then shoots him off. Tom reverses and goes for a hip toss. Ricky blocks, then goes for one. Tom blocks, then goes for a clothesline, but Ricky ducks and then nails an atomic drop, and at that time, Stan comes into the ring and they collide into each other. Tom and Ricky lock up, and Ricky works the arm and tags in Robert. Rock and Roll shoot Pritchard off, but he fights back with kicks, but the Rock and Roll regain the upper hand, shoot him off again, and Ricky hits a back body drop. I think they were trying to do a double team move here, but Robert botched. I think Robert Gibson did a botch on his part, so the double, so it didn't look like a double team move at all. I think they were going for a double back body drop, but Gibson fucked it up. Robert shoots Tom off and goes for a big boot, but Tom catches it, so Robert responds with an insiguri for a two count. They lock up, and Tom forces him into the corner, and Ricky blind tags himself in, and Robert holds Tom while Ricky gives a punch to the midsection. They circle each other and then lock up. Tom forces him into the corner, but Ricky fights out and nails both heavenly bodies with right hand. Ricky gets out of the corner and Stan gets into the ring and so does Robert. And they have a tag team stare down. The ref calms everyone down and Robert gets out of the ring and the heavenly bodies go and talk to Cornette in the corner. By the way, I love to see the ref exerting his authority and the wrestlers actually respecting it. That is, again, another lost art form in modern wrestling. Not respecting the authority of the referee. That's another problem. A referee is supposed to be in charge. He's supposed to call the shots. The problem with modern wrestling today is that they all do so much outlandish, stupid shit without any disregard for whether or not the referee's watching them that half the time the referee might as well be sitting in the crowd eating popcorn and snacks with the rest of us. Because you're literally just a fan in a striped shirt because you're not exerting any authority. Referees here actually exert authority and got the wrestlers to respect it. I've always said the one person a heel should always back down that is smaller than them is a referee. Because of their authority, you're thinking, I don't want to get disqualified. I don't want to get disqualified. I need to win the title or keep my title or whatever. The referee is the one person that is not stronger than a wrestler that is allowed to back a wrestler down without the use of a weapon. A manager can back a wrestler down if they have a weapon or if it's a valet and you're one of those baby faces that doesn't want to strike a woman or whatever the fuck. But the referee here is actually exerting his authority. The wrestlers are respecting it. Again, things like this you don't see today, but are so fucking important for storytelling and taking the sport seriously. Stan gets in the ring with Ricky, and Ricky starts yelling at Cornette, and Stan attacks and shoots him off, and they crisscross, and then Ricky slides out of the ring and chases after Cornette. Why? What the fuck was the point of this? Why is there a why is the crisscross even a thing? Why do I want to see guys? I'm gonna bounce off this rope. I'm gonna bounce off that. I'm going to bounce off this room. I'm going to bounce off that room. What the fuck? What am I watching training at a wrestling school? This looks so fucking dumb. And why are you chasing after Cornette? Cornette wasn't on the apron. Cornette wasn't distracting the referee. 
All Cornette is doing is running his fucking mouth like a manager is supposed to do. So there's no reason to chase after Jim Cornette. None. Cornette runs in the ring, collides in the stand, takes a big bump. Granted, he kind of oversold it, but it works because he's a manager. So he's allowed to take big, crazy, stupid bumps like that. Cornette wakes up all woozy and the heavenly bodies help him out of the ring and onto the apron. Robert grabs the heavenly bodies and does meeting of the minds. Slams their heads together. Ricky then knocks Cornette off the apron. Cornette pulls himself up by grabbing the ring curtain and then grabs Ricky's leg. During this time, Ricky gets a side headlock and Stan shoots him off and does a drop down. And then during that time, he grabs a leg. Stan kicks Ricky in the back and sends him out of the ring. Robert comes in to help his partner, but the ref backs him off. Meanwhile, outside of the ring, Tom holds Ricky while Cornette whacks him in the gut with the tennis racket. The loaded racket. He then kicks him while Tom gets a stomp of his own. Tom then throws Ricky back in the ring. Stan chokes out Ricky with the top rope and then gets on the apron and slams Ricky's throat onto the top rope. Stan then leaps over the ropes and hits Ricky with the clothesline. Similar, similar to the buckshot Larry, except Stan didn't flip over the top rope. He just jumped over, jumped into the ring and hit the clothesline. He didn't flip over. But it's still similar to the buckshot lariat. Still better than Hangman. Stan knocks Robert down. He gets in the ring and the ref backs him off again. Stan holds Ricky as Tom goes up to the second rope and nails a double axe handle. Stan leaves the ring and so does Robert. Tom nails a scoop slam and then a running knee drop for a two count. Tom grabs Ricky's hair and tags in Stan. Tom shoots Ricky off and it's a spin kick to the gut and then Stan does a swinging net breaker for a two count. Stan tags in Tom as they shoot off Ricky and hit double elbows to the midsection and then a double snapmare and then a double chokehold. So again, double teaming everything. Great tag team fluid chemistry. This is what you want to see in a tag team match. Teams working together throughout the match, not just here and there. Tom keeps it on as the ref backs Stan off. Tom then switches to a reverse chin lock. Ricky tries to tag Robert, but Tom lets go of the hold to hit Robert. And then while the ref stops Robert from getting into the ring, Tom holds Ricky and takes him over to Stan, who comes off the second rope with a chop to the throat. The ref didn't see a tag, so he orders Stan out of the ring. Glad to see the ref being unbiased for once. Finally, forcing the heels out of the ring. Tom picks up Ricky and tags in Stan. Tom hits a vertical suplex and Stan does the leap and clothesline combo again as they both take Ricky down. It was a weird double team move that made no fucking sense. Stan drops an elbow on Ricky and then shoots him off and Ricky counters with a sunset flip. But Tom breaks it up with a mule kick to the face. Tom and Ricky exchange punches and Ricky shoots him off and Tom goes for a sit down powerbomb but Ricky kicks out at two. Stan then tags in and hits Ricky in the corner as they fight out and Stan hits a power slam for a two count. Tom gets tagged in and they shoot Ricky off but Ricky hits both heavenly bodies with a DDT. Robert gets the hot tag, clotheslines the heavenly bodies and comes in like a house of fire. The bodies start double teaming Robert until Ricky comes in and they hit a double clothesline to Stan and the double drop kick to Tom. That's their finish apparently. Apparently the finish for the Rock and Roll Express is a double drop kick. That's their finisher. Robert brings in Cornette, who's scared because he doesn't have his racket. Tom attacks with a bulldog, and Cornette climbs onto the top turnbuckle and then gets on the apron and leaves the ring. Kind of similar to how Pat McAfee got out of the ring when he was a Royal Rumble entrant running away from Omos and Braun Breaker. The ref tries to separate Ricky and Stan, but then sees Tom pinning Robert, so he goes for the count, but Robert kicks out. Cornette distracts the ref as Tom back body drops Robert out of the ring. Ricky hits an atomic drop on Tom. He goes for a cover, but the ref is distracted by Cornette and Stan. Bobby Eaton comes off the top rope, but Ricky moves out of the way and he hits Tom by accident. Bobby goes after Ricky, but Ricky knocks him out of the ring. Robert covers Tom and Ricky, grabs Stan's legs to stop him, and the ref counts the three. Bobby and Tom fight after the match, and Stan and Cornette try to play Peacemaker and separate them. 
That's right, because Bobby Eaton interferes in this match because Bobby Eaton is a member of the Heavenly Bodies. It consists of Tom Pritchard, Stan Lane, and Bobby Eaton, even though Bobby and Stan were the Midnight Express, or at least the version that I respect. And Bobby Eaton was banned from ringside because he doesn't have a manager license. Because they took that shit seriously. Like, Cornette has a manager's license. So he was allowed to remain at ringside legally. Bobby Eaton had no reason to be there. So the ref ejected him before the matchup even started. So when Bobby Eaton comes out and interferes later, you know, it's helpful. But still, it messes the matchup. So Tom Pritchard and Bobby Eaton are now fighting. And Stan Lane and Jim Cornette are trying to, you know... Stop the fighting so the heavenly bodies don't deteriorate. So, great tag team match. Amazing tag team wrestling. Again, how wrestling's supposed to be done. Like I said, not a lot here for me to complain about. Maybe a few things here and there. But not a whole lot that made me angry and pissed off and wanting to throw things and say the wrestling business is dead. So I can at least be grateful for that. And this match was 12 minutes and 52 seconds. And on that note, we're going to move on here to the next match of the evening for the WCW United States heavyweight title. Dustin Rhodes defends the title against Max Payne. Dustin runs at Max and they lock up. If Dustin was going to run like that, why not just have him start wailing on him? That's what I thought was stupid. Look, I understand the importance of the collar and elbow tie. I know most matches you're locking up like that to establish strength, but also it allows the wrestlers to communicate with each other in the ring about what they're going to do and how they're going to call the spots and everything like that, or at least how the ring general is going to do it. You know, they have different ways of doing that. Like, you know, the side headlock, they communicate. Locking up, they communicate. There's different ways of them talking to each other. But look, I've seen the collar and elbow tie up in at least four matches already. The two tag team matches and the two regular singles matches. The Falls Count Anywhere match was probably the only match that didn't have a collar and elbow tie-up. If you're going to run at the guy, what is the point in running at somebody just to do a collar and elbow tie-up? To me, that's stupid. Run at him, just start wailing on the guy. Make your match look different. Oh, crap, right out of the gate, Dustin Rhodes beating the hell out of Max Payne. That would have been so much better than just seeing what I've been seeing for the last, you know, 40, 50 minutes, however fucking long this pay-per-view's been going in. Just boom. Show me something different at the start of the match. You know, maybe do a lockup later, but hey, right off the bat, beat the shit out of the guy. Mats gets a side headlock and then punches Dustin in the face. Dustin responds with a right hand of his own. He then starts wailing on him, finally, and Max rolls out of the ring. So he waits till a little bit later in the match to start wailing on the guy. You could have just did that at the start of the match and just had Max roll out of the ring. We didn't need the side headlock and all that shit. We didn't need the lockup. We didn't need the headlock. We didn't need to see any of that. We've already seen that enough in this show already. Let's get to the fighting. He tries to get back in, but Dustin hits a knee to the gut as Max is coming through the ropes. He then shoots him off and hits a vicious clothesline that sends Max back out of the ring. Max gets back in and they circle each other and lock up. Dustin gets a side headlock and Max shoots him off and Dustin kicks him in the face and rolls him up for a two count. Dustin hits him with an arm drag and Max rolls out of the ring again. He gets back in the ring and is clearly shook up by how aggressive Dustin has been. Dustin goes for a test of strength, but Max backs away. They lock up and Dustin works the arm and puts on a standing modified arm bar and then cranks the arm some more. Again, love seeing that. Max forces him against the ropes and knees him in the ribs multiple times. Max shoots him off, drops down, goes for a clothesline, but Dustin ducks it and hits a flying arm drag. It looked like a botch. I'm going to be honest with you. I I can't really tell 100 percent but from the angle I was watching and the way just the way it looked that looked like a botch 
It really did. They lock up, and Dustin hits an arm drag. Max fights up, gets her waist lock, and drives Dustin into the turnbuckle. Max shoots him off and goes for a splash, but misses. And Dustin hits another arm drag and locks in a modified arm bar while keeping his knee on his head. I like that. Max rakes the eyes as they get back to their feet and he throws punches and chops in the corner and then pulls him out and hits a snapmare and then goes for a forearm shot. But Dustin moves out of the way and goes right into the arm as he slams his knee onto it. Dustin shoots him off, but Max responds with an elbow shot for a two count. Max works him in the corner, shoots him off, but Dustin responds with a boot. Dustin shoots him off, Max reverses and throws him to the floor. He hits a forearm shot to the arm as he locks in a modified armbar with a knee on the back of the head. Dustin fights up, but Max is still in control as he grinds the shoulder. Max hits an arm drag, but Dustin counters with a head scissors, but Max fights out and hits a big clothesline. He grinds the knee into Dustin's face. Dustin fights from underneath, but Max continues the beatdown. They go out to the floor, and Max wraps Dustin's arm around the bottom rope. Max shoots him off and hits a back body drop. Dustin hits a shot to the midsection, legs, and head. He gets up and hits a big boot to the head but then falls back down. Max shoots him off and Dustin goes for a tackle but doesn't phase him. Dustin goes for a crossbody, but Max slams him down. Max goes for an elbow, but Dustin moves out of the way. Dustin mule kicks him in the gut. Dustin, with some punches, bounces off the ropes, hits a flying lariat. Dustin picks him up and hits a vertical suplex for a two count. Dustin shoots him off and and hooks in the abdominal stretch. Max pulls the ref into Dustin to break the hold, and the ref calls for the bell to DQ Max Payne. So Max gets disqualified. Max slams Dustin on the floor and then sends him shoulder first into the ring post. Tries to do again. Dustin slams him head first into the ring post and then head first into the apron. They get back in the ring and Dustin punches him and then nails a drop kick as Max falls out of the ring and officials come out to separate them. So just to be clear, Max Payne got disqualified. So Dustin Rhodes retained the title, but he did it via DQ, which was, uh, like I said, I'm not a big fan of seeing DQs at pay-per-views. So as a fan, I didn't particularly care for this, but at least it was different from everything else that I saw. And I like this match. It was a lot more aggressive than the other normal matches on here. And notice that I said normal matches because clearly the false count anywhere match was aggressive. And I like the fact this was a little bit more violent. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, wrestling in here. There's a lot more fighting than you normally see. These guys were having a fight, and it showed. You know, they were basically having a legal fight. You know, shots to the ribs. You know, the fact that there was an elbow for a two count. You know, they're using basic moves and going for covers. They're not just waiting until they hit something big. They're trying to make every single move look devastating and mean something, which again is a lost art form. It's not just your finishers that are supposed to look devastating. Every move you hit in a match should look devastating. Every move you hit should be done in such a way to where it looks like you're trying to use that move to beat the other person. Everything you do should be trying to win, not lose, if you're the babyface. That's the key thing. Everybody has to try to win, not lose. Now, the babyface is important to try to win, not lose. A heel has to try to win as well. But he can do it through, you know, evil criminal methods. That's the difference. So, overall, it was a good match. You know, it was there. It was the U.S. title. A lot was at stake. Apparently, they said somebody else was supposed to face Dustin. But for whatever reason, that person was not able to show up. Apparently, uh, he was supposed to wrestle Ron Simmons. But Ron Simmons was injured. So, Max Payne got to take his place. And it sucks because I would have loved to have seen Ron Simmons in this match, especially if Ron Simmons was going to win the United States title. 
And this match was 11 minutes and 28 seconds. And on that note, we're going to move on to the next match of the evening for the NWA World Heavyweight title. The Great Muda with Hiro Matsuda defends the title against Barry Windham. First of all, love the fact that Hiro Matsuda is in here, especially since Matsuda is, you know, a legend in Japanese wrestling, but also the guy who was known for training uh, Hulk Hogan and Lex Luger. Those were his uh, legendary students. He also trained B. Brian Blair, Bob Orton Jr., Dick Slater, Hercules, Mike Graham, Paul Orndorff, Ricky Chasu, Ron Simmons, Scott Casey, Scott Hall, Ted DiBiase, and the Great Muda, which makes sense. So, you know, he's known for being a legendary trainer. And at first, the crowd is chanting, we want flair, which pretty much buries both guys right off the bat. Because if two people are in the ring and you're chanting for somebody else, you're basically saying you don't give a fuck about either one of these two which is not what you want in a world title match. It's kind of similar to the Royal Rumble when John Cena fought Randy Orton and the crowd just chanted for Daniel Bryan the whole fucking time. Like, it's kind of like that. That's basically what we're seeing here. The only difference is, you know, Ric Flair is actually a star who draws money as opposed to Daniel Bryan who is very much a flash in the pan. So they're chanting, we want flair. So already you're losing interest in this match. They lock up and Muda gets a waist lock, but Barry gets to the ropes to break it. They lock up and Muda forces him to the corner and the ref calls for the break. Barry shoots Muda into the ropes. They go for the test of strength, but Barry backs off. They go for it again, and this time they battle it out. Barry takes Muda down to his knees. Muda fights up, and Barry flips him over. They circle and lock up, but Muda gets a side headlock. Muda gets a headlock takeover. Barry fights to his belly and gets up. Barry shoots him off. Muda hits a tackle. Barry drops down, leapfrogs, but then Muda hits him with a spin kick. Muda hits a side headlock takeover and gets a few one counts, like one kick out, one kick out, one kick out, one kick out, with the side headlock takeover. Barry rolls to his stomach and fights up. Barry goes for a back suplex, but Muda brings him back down. Love that Rick wants to call Jesse mayor, and Jesse says, and soon to be senator. Because at this point, Ric Flair is out here, and he is on commentary for this match. He's out here calling the action alongside Tony Schiavone and Jesse Ventura. And it's also kind of funny because at the time of this, Jesse Ventura was the mayor of Brooklyn Park. Because from January 11, 1991 to January 13, 1995, Jesse Ventura was the mayor of Brooklyn Park. So while he was the mayor, he got to do all this great stuff as well. And obviously did them on weekends when the Capitol was closed, so it didn't interfere with him being mayor. And of course, you know, he also became later the governor of Minnesota from January 4, 1999 to January 6, 2003 was how long he was a, he was the governor. And Jesse at one point considered going for the Senate. And he actually said, had he gone for the Senate, he would have done a senatorial investigation about professional wrestlers being independent contractors. But Jesse decided not to become a senator after he was done being governor. And of course, people often wonder if he'll ever run for president. I seriously doubt he ever will, but it'd be nice to see him do it. So just that little talk back and forth I thought was kind of funny. Barry fights up and goes for another back suplex, but Muda brings him back down again. Muda hangs on to the headlock. Barry fights up and gets him against the ropes to finally break it. So the headlock's been on this whole time. And Barry's trying to fight up, but Muda keeps bringing him back down. This is how you use a headlock takeover, ladies and gentlemen. You're actually trying to beat somebody with the move. It's not a move that's just there. This is amazing wrestling. 
from Muda and Wyndham. Barry hits a big right hand, shoots him off. Muda reverses. Barry hits a tackle, bounces off the ropes. Muda stays down, gets up, leapfrogs, and hits a drop kick on Barry and does another side headlock takeover. And again, I love that they use the headlock as an actual hold. This is old school psychology being done here. It is fucking beautiful to see. And again, if done properly, it can still get over. You can do shit like this and still get the crowd on their feet without having to risk paralyzing yourself by doing dumb shit. Barry hits a back suplex, but Muda still hangs on to the headlock. Barry forces him into the corner and the ref breaks it up. Barry hits him in the midsection and the head and then goes for a suplex, but Muda blocks it and hits a suplex of his own. Muda hits a snapmare and an elbow drop and then right back to the side headlock takeover. Jesse calls it classic wrestling and that's exactly what this is. It is classic wrestling. It is amazing and beautiful to see. This is wrestling. 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 Barry fights out of the top wrist lock, but Muda gets the headlock again. Barry goes again for a back suplex, and Muda again rolls through and holds on. Barry finally fights out and hits a Muda and hits Muda with some elbows and then clubs the back of the head. Barry shoots him off. Muda reverses, and Barry holds onto the ropes as Muda misses the drop kick. Muda favors the neck as Barry chops the neck and then hits a vicious DDT. Muda rolls out to the floor, and Barry follows him and hits a back suplex onto the floor. Barry gets back in the ring as the ref counts. Muda gets on the apron, and Barry hits a suplex. And I noticed during this part they cut to they have this photographer in the corner i swear to god the photographer on the outside looks exactly like vince russo i know it's not vince russo because he would not come in and contaminate the wrestling business for another few years but the photographer looks identical to russo barry hits a scoop slam and then drops the knee across the forehead does it again and gets a two count barry shoots him off and then locks in the sleeper hold Barry takes him down, and the ref checks the arm. Drops once, but Muda avoids a second drop. Barry uses the ropes for leverage while the ref checks on Muda. Barry does it a second time, and the ref still isn't wise to Barry's cheating, as he's using the ropes for leverage with his feet. The ref still doesn't see it, which is brilliant. Arm drops twice, but Muda avoids the third and final drop. Barry goes back to the feet on the ropes, but the ref catches it and orders the hold to break. So, got caught on the third try. Barry drops the knee to the back of the head and a forearm to the back of the head. Barry clubs the top of the head and then kicks and elbows the side of Muda's head and gets a two count. Barry hits a gut wrench suplex for a two count. Barry chops the head and throws him out of the ring. Barry chops Muda, who lays against the apron, but starts firing up, and Barry hits an axe handle off the apron. Muda gets in the ring and they exchange blows. Barry rakes the eyes and hits a scoop slam and an elbow drop for a two count. Barry locks in a reverse chin lock. Muda fights out and chops Barry, hits a tackle, and goes for a sunset flip, but Barry gives him a big right hand because he's too heavy for Muda to flip him. Barry shoots him off. Muda ducks the clothesline and hits a crossbody for a two count. Barry puts his boot on the turnbuckle and slams Muda's head into it. Barry chops the back and then goes for a pile driver, but Muda counters with a back body drop. Muda falls to the ground and Barry knees him in the back. Barry hits a big right hand. Barry elbows Muda in the chest and drops a leg on the back of the head and rolls him over for a two count. Barry kicks him in the head. Muda blocks a punch and hits a spin kick. Barry hits a thumb to Muda's eye. Barry places Muda on the top turnbuckle and goes for a superplex, but Muda fights out and headbutts and chops Barry down. Muda hits a chop off the top. Muda shoots Barry into the corner and does a handspring back elbow. Muda hits a backbreaker. Back didn't even touch his knee, which that looked bad. Bad. 
Muda goes for a moonsault, but Barry barely moves out of the way. <sighs> Fucking say that ten times fast. Barry kicks him in the gut and goes for a superplex, but Muda fights out and hits a back suplex. Muda gets up with a burst of energy and hits another backbreaker. Same botch as before. Muda goes for a moonsault, but Barry gets the knees up and Barry hits a vicious clothesline and then nails the DDT for the win. So Barry becomes the new NWA World Heavyweight Champion. Now, Ric Flair gets in the ring to present the title to Barry Windham. He puts it around his waist, and then there's a stare down. Flair leaves the ring, and Barry celebrates, which apparently this sets up Barry Windham and Ric Flair for a feud over the world title later on down the road. And then at Beach Blast, he would win the NWA world title for a 10th time, and it would be his last run with the NWA world title because WCW would leave the NWA permanently in September. So in September of this year is when the NWA is no longer affiliated with WCW. And this match was 24 minutes and 10 seconds of intense classic wrestling. Loved it. Like I said, there were a few botches, there were a few moments, but this match was never boring. At, at no point in this match was I bored to fucking tears. This was very well done, and again, proving that classic wrestling can get over and classic wrestling can be done right. And also, that it's the preferred way to go. And on that note, we move on to the main event of the evening. A White Castle of Fear strap match. Big Van Vader with Harley Race versus Sting. Now, before I get into this match, there is one thing I need to address right here at the top. And that is the fact that I fucking love the fact that they are using a proper stipulation for this strap match. I hate strap matches in modern wrestling. I hate them with a passion. I fucking hate them. And I hate them for one reason. And that is the fact that they took out the most important aspect of a strap match. And that is to incapacitate your opponent and drag your opponent to all four corners of the ring in secession. You're tapping the four corners of the ring. That is what you are supposed to do with a strap match. It is not take a strap and whip your opponent over and over and over and over and over again and then count a pinfall or record a submission. There are no pinfalls. There are no submissions. You drag your opponent to the corners and touch them because that's what's supposed to make the match different. That's what makes it different. I'm different. Yo, I'm different. I'm different. Yo, I'm different. One chain. Yo, I'm different. Fucking ridiculous that modern wrestling does this. So to see a proper strap match for the first time in fucking God knows when, I'm already excited for this match. Never mind the fact that it's Vader and Sting. Yes, I like Vader. Yes, I like Sting. But I'm just happy with the fact we're seeing a proper strap match in fucking wrestling. So they get tied at the wrist to the strap. Vader cracks the strap like a whip to psych out Sting. They play tug of war and Vader pulls him to the other side of the ring and taunts him. They play tug of war again. Vader pulls Sting again as he flips to the other side of the ring. They play tug of war again and they get face to face. They back up and Vader pulls Sting to him and he hits a clothesline. Kind of reminding me of Scorpion in Mortal Kombat like, get over here. Bam. Love it. This is already different from all the other matches. They're not doing collar elbow tie-ups. They're not trying to go for flip moves. They're wrestling with the strap, and they're allowing the strap to tell the story. So again, we're seeing variety. Vader drops the elbow. Vader whips him with the strap and then climbs to the middle rope and hits a splash. 
Sting gets up and uses the strap to hit low blows on Vader and then hits multiple ripe hands and a spinning chop and then knocks him down. Sting goes to the middle rope, pulls him, and hits a drop kick. Sting goes to the middle rope and hits a flying clothesline. Sting goes to the top turnbuckle and hits a big splash. Sting goes back up top and hits another splash. Sting rolls Vader on his back, pulls down the straps on his singlet, and uses the leather strap to whip Vader's back. Race gets on the apron and Sting knocks him out with the strap. And I reply, how is Harley still standing? That should have knocked him out for a while. Now look, I understand that Harley Race is a legend. I understand Harley Race is a seven-time world heavyweight champion, if I remember correctly. I understand he's one of the all-time greats, and even that there's going to be a Dark Side of the Ring episode of Harley Race coming out later this year. I know on season five, Harley Race is one of the episodes. But right now, Harley Race is not a wrestler. He is a fucking manager. That strap should have knocked his ass the fuck out for a while. Not a long while, but a while. He should not be standing after that. So I have an issue with Harley Race on that one. Sting goes to the outside and uses a strap to pull Vader into the ring post. Sting then touches the first post. Now, in this moment, I learned something about strap matches that I did not know before. I didn't know you could touch the posts on the outside. I thought you had to touch the turnbuckle. I didn't know you could touch the ring post on the outside, and that still count. That's news to me. I'm not mad about it. I was just surprised. Sting then hits a scoop slam on Vader and then touches the first post again. And I love the psychology behind Sting doing that. Because remember, you're supposed to touch all four corners in succession. That means you have to touch one, touch two. You can't do anything in between. The only thing you can do in between is drag your opponent. So if you stop to punch somebody, or if the guy you're dragging cuts you off, it, you start all over again. So I love the fact he touched the post, hit a scoop slam, and touched the same post again. Because most people in modern wrestling would just hit the scoop slam and then touch the second post. Because they're stupid. Sting however is not stupid although granny's making stupid decisions with this last run and with who his retirement opponents are but still in general smart guy and in this match very smart he then touches the second post and then goes for the third but vader pulls sting into the guardrail and stops the count they get to their feet sting goes back into the ring and vader gets pulled into the ring and sting hits a samoan drop Vader pulls him in and hits a body blow. Vader kicks him in the gut and goes for a power bomb, but Sting hits a huge back body drop to break out. Sting goes up top and goes for the splash, but misses. Vader hits a splash of his own and starts wailing on Sting. So Vader's got the splash, now he's wailing on him because he knows there's no pinfalls. Vader picks up Sting and hits a Samoan drop. Vader goes up top and hits the Vader bomb. Vader now whips Sting with a leather strap. He then hoists Sting on his shoulders, climbs to the middle rope, and does a Samoan drop to the floor. Vader touches the first post. Then the second post. He then struggles to drag Sting to the third, but Sting kicks him into the turnbuckle. The ref waves it off, but technically he did touch the turnbuckle, so that should count. That that should count, because he touched the corner. You knock somebody into the corner, you touched it. So to me, the ref shouldn't have waved it off. I didn't like that. Vader should have had a chance to go for the last post, and then Sting could cut him off there. That would be different. So I didn't like that. That, that's, that spot I didn't particularly care for. I felt like the ref fucked that up. But I blame the ref, not the wrestlers. Vader stomps Sting and drags him to the center, and Vader goes for a Vader bomb, but Sting rolls out of the way. Vader goes up top, but Sting pulls the strap and crotches Vader. 
Bayer gets back to his feet and Sting pulls him down off the turnbuckle and launches him to the other side of the ring. Vader gets up and beats down on Sting. Sting responds with a right hand of his own. Sting hits multiple shots until Vader finally responds with one of his own. Vader picks up Sting and sits him on the turnbuckle and hits a superplex. Vader hits the first one, then the second one, the ring posts, drags him to the third one and Sting wraps his legs around the bottom rope to stop from being dragged to the last turnbuckle and then breaks the hole to kick Vader down and stop the count. This stop is believable. This one I believe, this one I liked. It was great. Amazing. Vader beats down on Sting in the corner. Vader gives a kick to the ribs and Vader pulls Sting to hit him for a body blow. He hits another one and then on the third time, Sting rolls through and kicks Vader in the face. Vader shoots him off, ducks the clothesline, hits multiple elbows and then a German suplex. Sting then hits a DDT. Sting backs Vader into the corner and beats down on him. Sting picks up Vader who accidentally kicks the referee. Sting hits three corners and gets to the last one as he struggles to get there and trips over the referee and barely misses the last corner. Now, technically the ref wasn't looking anyway, so it most likely wouldn't have counted. And I would have preferred that. Like, Sting hits the last corner, but the referee didn't see it, so it doesn't count. I would have preferred that. Because the ref's not looking, so even if he grabbed the last post, the ref can't call for the bell because the ref's knocked down. The ref's not seeing shit, so I thought that spot was stupid. Vader hits a bonsai drop. Vader ties Sting's feet together with the strap as he touches the first corner, then the second corner, then the third corner, and Sting tries to fight and holds onto the ropes. Race tries to break Sting's hands free while Vader tries to touch the post. Finally, Sting kicks Vader, and then he falls into the turnbuckle and taps it to win the match. Love that they counted it this time. Great finish. This was an amazing fucking finish. Loved it. Sting snaps and whips Vader with the strap after Harley Race took it off of Vader's wrist. Vader rolls out of the ring and retreats up the ramp. So just to be clear, Vader went over. Vader defeats Sting. This is a great finish. Sting kicking Vader, him falling in the turnbuckle. He taps it. Boom, they win the match. Great. Loved it. Awesome finish. Very violent match and a stellar fucking main event. This was a stellar main event. Truly. Like I said, it was a strap match done properly with amazing psychology and storytelling from two of the all-time greats. I couldn't have asked for a better main event right here. Now, the reason that Vader's title wasn't on the line, because technically Vader is the WCW World Heavyweight Champion, but this match was non-sanctioned by WCW, which also explains why it went on last. Because technically by this point, the show is over. This is technically not the main event because it's not sanctioned by WCW. They want nothing to do with this. They are not held liable for whatever happens between Sting and Vader in a match of this violent magnitude. So, amazing. Props to everyone. And this match was 20 minutes and 54 seconds. And I will say, overall, I enjoyed Super Brawl 3. Like I said, there were moments that were great, moments that were boring, moments that were like, what the fuck? But still, classic wrestling done in a way that is easy to register, easy to believe, and most importantly, easy to love. I would recommend this pay-per-view to anyone who truly says, I love professional wrestling. Because this is professional wrestling. And that, ladies and gentlemen, will wrap up this episode of the Boochcast. I thank you guys so much for tuning in. Make sure you guys follow the Boochcast. We're on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Pick your favorite hosting site and follow us there, or be a super fan and follow us on all four hosting sites. Also, like us on Facebook. Go to facebook.com slash theboochcast. We have archived episodes of the show as well as great content. Make sure you guys check out the male soap opera moment. You can see our predictions for the Royal Rumble. Find out who was right and who was wrong. Be on the lookout for our Royal Rumble recap. 
coming soon to the Boochcast Facebook page, and we just recently taped it. And also be on the lookout for our predictions for the WWE Elimination Chamber coming soon to the Boochcast Facebook page. Also, make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Boochcast. Get the latest tweets, photos, and videos. Visit our YouTube channel. Check out all of our YouTube content. And be sure to hit the subscribe button and ring that bell to be notified when future content will be posted. We've got our Boochcast reviews, Dark Side of the Ring episodes out right now. We have Chris and Tammy, Magnum TA, the Graham Family Dynasty, and of course, Doink the Clown are all out now on the YouTube channel. Uh, This coming Thursday at 2 p.m. We're going to have the Junkyard Dog episode come out. We also got Adrian Adonis, Abdullah the Butcher, Bam Bam Bigelow all coming soon. And right now, I am currently still in the process of working on the WCW Bash of the Beach 2000 video review. Uh, That one is very, very time-consuming, I'll be honest, because it's the most in-depth we've ever gone into analyzing wrestling on the Boochcast Reviews Dark Side of the Ring series. So I'm still working on it, but I'm hoping to have it done by the deadline to have it out there to you guys. And of course... Of course, we have Boochcast Reviews Dark Side of the 2000s coming soon. We're going to be getting those out to you guys. I just got to get those edited and in the can. I'm currently in the process of rounding up comedians for Boochcast Reviews Dark Side of Comedy. And hopefully at some point, Lance and I will be able to work on Dark Side of Football for the YouTube channel as well. So if you haven't already, subscribe to the channel. Ring the bell to be notified. Check out all the content that's currently on there. And be ready for the content we got coming soon. And of course, make sure you follow us on Twitch. Go to twitch.tv slash theboochcast. That's where we do our live wrestling watch parties. Our next watch party will be Saturday, April 6th and Sunday, April 7th for nights one and two of WrestleMania 40. That's right. We'll be getting together for two nights of the biggest event in professional wrestling with everything that went down at the press conference in Las Vegas this past Thursday and with everything going on regarding SmackDown and the days and weeks to come. We know WrestleMania 40 is about to become an amazing WrestleMania. What we thought was going to be the shitty turns out it's going to be awesome. Hope to God it stays that way, but believe me... We are following this because we are hoping to have an exciting WrestleMania 40 watch party when the days hit. So make sure you join us on twitch.tv slash the Boochcast. And of course, we have our live D&D show coming soon, our Boochcast booking battle, and another special project in the works. And of course, you can support the Boochcast by going to podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash the Boochcast slash support. Become a supporter of the Boochcast. Support this podcast with a small monthly donation to help sustain future episodes. We have three levels you can donate at. Pick the one that works the best within your budget. We have our first level, which is $0.99, cents, $1 per month. We have our second level, which is $4.99, $5 per month. The same amount of money you would pay for a Peacock subscription. I know a lot of you guys out there aren't fans of the Peacock, so don't give them money. Give us money. We get better content than Peacock anyway. And we got the third and final level you can donate at, which is for a mere $9.99. per month. The same amount of money we used to pay for a WWE Network subscription here in the United States. Ever since they sold the Peacock, you got nowhere to put that $9.99. To that $9.99, bring it over here. We got better content than the network and unlike the Elite, we actually care about our fans are dedicated to giving the people what they want. You have the option of paying with your credit card or with GPay. And the best part is all the money we raise goes back into the show in some capacity. We used to upgrade our equipment. We used to bring in bigger name guests. 
pay the bills, and take care of all the guys who work very hard on the air and off the air to make the Boochcast a success. So if you got a favorite co-host and believes they're to be paid for their hard work, podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash the Boochcast slash support is how you make that happen. And then if there's any money left over, when it's all said and done, we use the rest to feed Zachariah Scott his ramen noodles and try to get him laid. And until next time, this is Vinny Bucci, a.k.a. The Booch, saying keep on living life and take care this has been the booch cast we'll talk to you guys next time until then pizza baby well i see by the clock on a wall that it's time to bid you one and all goodbye goodbye so long so long farewell farewell adieu adieu be good stay well bye bye keep warm relax and eat take care stay loose adieu mon vieux à la prochaine goodbye till when we meet again